Welcome to the November 2022 edition of The Compliance Life. This month in November, I visit with Stephen Martin. Stephen is the CCO at Skillsoft. Stephen has worked in a variety of areas in the compliance field, in law firms, the DOJ, and consulting. I know you'll enjoy the month of November on The Compliance Life. In this episode one, Stephen talks about his academic career and his early professional career in state and federal governmental service. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with Bridget Abram. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Month on The Compliance Life. I'm thrilled to have one of my best friends visit with us about his journey to the CCO chair, and that is Stephen Martin. Stephen, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. It's always great to have a chat with you and be on your podcast. So, Stephen, you have one of the most interesting journeys of anyone I know in compliance and to the CCO chair. So why don't you start off by telling us where you went to college and where you went to law school? Okay. Yeah. I think it has been an interesting career. I'd say there's some fun twists and turns that we get to talk about here, but but it is the education background, I think is important for people that are out there as listeners and thinking about how you're going to be a compliance officer. My, my path was I went to the University of Denver, studied political science and public affairs and economics there. I went to school, played baseball, which was great and really enjoyed that part. After the University of Denver, I went to Creighton Law School, studied there, took my first job out of law school, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But then I also have degrees from Georgetown University Law Center, I'm in environmental law and advanced litigation. And then I went back after a little bit of my troubled company career that I know we'll also talk about, went back and did my MBA because I wanted to certainly understand financial statements and performance and the business side as well. So that's my background. So what was your early professional career like, Stephen? It was interesting. I took basically half a year off from law school, decided after my first year, I was going to backpack and bike through Europe and talk to a friend of mine in from college going over there. And we lived in Europe for a while until we ran out of money and it got really cold. And so about Christmas time, I decided to go back to law school because that seemed like a better path at the time, but spent eight months or so running around Europe. What that did is put me obviously slightly behind my class. But as I was graduating, I was offered a job at the Missouri Attorney General's office. And of course, they wanted me to start in the normal sequence. So I had to both convince the law school to allow me to take extra classes, but also to finish through summer school to graduate on time. And they did that initially, they balked, but then it did it because it was a really interesting job. 
And it was one of those that was very competitive at the time to get very low pain, which was always interesting, but high profile because like within six weeks, I was arguing the court of appeals, general counsel, a couple of different agencies dealing with really interesting issues right out of law school, which was incredible. And I was working directly with the attorney general who, who later became a three-term governor of the state of Missouri. So it was an amazing start to my career, right? And I would tell law students that are out there, if anybody's listening to this, that go do something interesting, right? There's lots of choices with law firms and you can make a lot of money doing it. But the experience that you get doing something like I did going straight into an attorney general's office was just incredible because what it did is it really taught me to be able to think on my feet because you know, as well as I'm coming right out of law school, you're not necessarily trained to be as practical. I think they do a better job now than they did back when we were in school. But to really understand how to be a lawyer and how to deal with issues and so you're figuring it out real time, you're thrown into something you don't know anything about, and you get to think on your feet, which is great training for a lawyer. Where'd you go after the Missouri AG's role, Stephen? I was, so when you go there, you commit to two years initially. And at the end of those two years, I was thinking about, okay, what do I want to do next? And I had decided I wanted to go back to do an LLM degree. And personally was very interested in environmental types of issues, but also was interested in politics. I was interested uh, potentially going to the U.S. Attorney's Office, which I did end up at later on. And so we can talk about that a little bit, but decided I was going to go one of two places and ended up picking Georgia. And so my then girlfriend, now wife, we just packed up and moved to Washington, D.C. I arrived in Washington, D.C. And as I started thinking about work, as well as doing the kind of LLM program, I took a job up on the Hill, actually working as a legislative aide for a congresswoman and enjoyed that experience, which was fun. Really, that's a quintessential kind of D.C. experience working on the Hill. But very quickly after I arrived in D.C., I was offered a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., and so I switched over from working on the Hill to being a federal prosecutor, which was the best job somebody can ask for. Before we get to that, Stephen, could you give a few words about your LLM and either what academic the academic rigor you had to go through for that or something you may have learned different from law school in your LLM program that you've been able to bring forward with you even to... Yeah, the LLM, a lot of people do it to specialize in like tax or security law. So if you have a specialty that you want to be trained in more advanced tech, advanced law, technology, technical aspects of the law. And so I wasn't thinking about it that way. I was more interested. I was kind of, I grew up on college universities. Both my parents were college professors, right? And so I just loved school, found it really interesting. I wanted to try and develop my own LLM. And so what I did is Georgetown was one of the unique places or a couple other schools where you could literally design your own program. And so what I did is mix my personal interest with what I was doing as a lawyer. And so I did it in both half environmental law, because I really am interested, especially now on ESG and environmental types of issues. But then I was doing advanced litigation because I was a trial attorney and I was a litigator. It's what I really wanted to do. And so I spent a lot of time kind of learning more advanced litigation approaches and environmental law. What was really dynamic about Georgetown, frankly, was just the professors you had and just the access to people. So one of my professors was President Clinton's chief of staff. And so you would have meetings occasionally at the White House, which was really interesting to see. I took a Supreme Court class and we would have Supreme Court justices that would stop by to talk to the class. And you just, you don't get that experience anywhere else in the world other than DC. And so to me, it was like, 
understanding the practical aspects of how can you be a really good lawyer. I love the Georgetown experience of dealing with top professors and top, top adjuncts who were at the tops of their profession, which is incredible. And so you get to see people that have been so successful in their careers. What does it take to get there? And how do you see that? And how do the power centers of the world really work? And Washington, D.C. is one of the power centers of the world. And so that was a pretty incredible experience outside of just being in the classroom. So tell us about your Department of Justice career, Stephen. So I started out, mine was an interesting one because I got hired initially by Eric Holder when he was the U.S. attorney before he became the attorney general or deputy attorney general and then the attorney general. And I started out in the civil division and there you're working for any number of federal agencies handling all kinds of litigation. You could have FOIA lawsuits, you could have employment, you could have people suing the agency for any number of different reasons. And so that was interesting to see how it all works. And I enjoyed the civil litigation. I enjoyed the federal court practice, getting a lot of experience in front of federal judges, which was fantastic. But then spending a little bit of time there, I really wanted to be on the criminal side. So I switched over to the criminal side and went through the normal kind of process in D.C., which in D.C., unlike other U.S. attorney's offices, a couple things are important. One, you get a ton of trial practice because you're basically the state prosecutor as well as the federal prosecutor because you're handling all of the local crime in Washington, D.C., as well as all the federal cases. And so you rotate through different divisions. And so you start an appellate. You can go through misdemeanors. You go through felonies. You can go through drugs and guns. You can do murders. You can do sex crimes. Now it's changed where you're doing a lot of terrorism type of work. They certainly were handling a lot of the election protests insurrection types of issues that come up. And so it's a very dynamic place to work as a lawyer. And it was really interesting to me because I love seeing and doing different things. And so the fact that you rotate through each of these divisions and you get to select what you'd like to do and what you're interested in doing, and then just the incredible amount of experience you get in court. When you're doing the drugs and guns docket case and you're doing it in D.C. Superior Court, you're trying cases on the fly, right? You don't have a lot of time to talk to law enforcement officers or agents from any of the, the federal agencies, and you're going right into court and you're handling these drug cases. So you're getting a lot of trial experience. You're getting a lot of jury experience. I probably... I don't know what I tried, probably 40 or 50 cases, jury trials. I probably have argued 15 or 20 appeals when I was a young lawyer. And you're talking, I was at that point, I had only been out of school three, four, five years as I was a federal prosecutor. And so you're just getting an incredible amount of experience in front of judges and, and juries. And you just can't replace that. And for somebody like me who really enjoys that kind of experience, it was an incredible training ground. Could you say a few words about your uh some of the friendships you made with your other AUSAs. And I know you've had relationships with some of those people for, I guess, 25 years now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, I think I've told you this, we, I play in a fantasy football league of uh, former federal prosecutors for the most part, and we've had that league. So I would have been at the U.S. Attorney's Office in 97, 1997. So you can do the math and figure out how many years it's been, but it's been quite a while. And we still have our fantasy football league. There was a funny story one time where we all met at a local bar to pick our fantasy football teams. And at that day and age, if you remember that, if you were in those leagues, technically it was betting or you're changing money or whatever. It's not a big deal now, but back in the day, that was a little bit of a big deal. And we were at a bar downtown close to our offices 
And one of the guys who's in the league had written on the board outside the bar, DOJ Fantasy Football League upstairs or something. And we saw it on camera because there was a sports reporter doing that outside the thing. We're like, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. It didn't turn into anything, but it was one of those kind of funny things about uh, prosecutors and, quote, potential gambling. But it was a fun fantasy league. We all still are connected. Some of my best friends are guys that I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office with. Mark Litt, who is one of my absolute closest friends, ended up being the lead prosecutor in the Madoff case. And so it was awesome to hear his experience and what he had done. And uh, But it, it's a collection of folks. And I have the same kind of reaction to the to uh, the attorney general's office in Missouri, too. When you come in as a young prosecutor and you're in with kind of a class, it's a little bit the same of going into a university setting on a sports team. You come in with your class and you're good friends with them and you've worked hard. You've been in the bunkers with them. And so you become friends for life. And, uh, you know, that's a tremendous experience that you don't always get in a lot of different workplaces. Stephen, I was wondering, is there one or two trial cases or appellate arguments that really uh, have stuck with you all of these years and still stand out to you today? It's funny. People once in a while ask me that. Actually, my kids asked me that the other day. They wanted me to tell some stories along the way. And there are, yeah, there are ones you remember. And there's a, there was a guy who was a Vietnam veteran, this guy named Jay Condren, who, you know, was addicted to drugs and was doing some things out of the VA that he shouldn't have been doing. But he was also challenging a lot of things in court. And I had to deal with a federal judge there who I'm not going to name. But at the time, he made a big deal out of ordering the VA to pre prescribe medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, to this to this former vet. And I basically said to the judge, I said, judge, you can't enter that order. You're not a medical doctor. You can't enter this order. This is outside the jurisdiction of the court in this case. And he's like, Mr. Martin, I'm going to teach you a little lesson about what a federal judge can and can't do, especially in my courtroom. And he said, so I'm going to enter this order. And he's very dynamic. And he's a famous DC judge. And he's a big personality. And he does whatever he wants. And he was making big movements out. He's, I'm going to sign this order right here. And you're going to see that the VA is going to comply. And I said, you know, judge, with all due respect, if you sign that order, I'm going to appeal you immediately, right? Mr. Martin, I'm giving you really good advice here as a young lawyer. I'm telling you what I can do. And I said, I understand that, sir, but I'm going to have to appeal this decision if you sign that order. Okay, Mr. Martin, you do what you have to do. And he signs this order and he storms off the bench. I come back a couple hours later into his courtroom and I said, your honor, I said, I have the documents here to appeal this order. If you continue to enter that, then I'm going to appeal this. And he's, Mr. Martin, you son of a bitch. What? I told you to just let this go. And I said, with all due respect, sir, you have, you can do a lot as a federal judge, but you cannot, as you don't have a medical license, so you can't enter this order. And he just got so pissed at me. And then he said, fine, I'm rescinding the order and stormed off the bench. And then I was in front of him a couple of days later and he's, I was with a couple other attorneys and we were doing something. He said, Mr. Martin, come up to the bench. And I said, okay. He's like, I need to talk to you. Can you come back in chambers? And the other lawyers on the other side were like looking at me, like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, I can come back in chambers. And he's like, okay, come on back. And the other lawyers are sitting there, right? And they're like, what the hell is going on? And I said, I don't know, guys, the judge. And again, I'm not going to name him, but he's, everybody's like watching this. I go back in his chambers. And he's like, I just want to take a little break here. He's like, have you ever thought about going to the SEC? He's like, I think you'd be a great SEC attorney. And I've got some sway over there. Would you like me to just get you a job at the SEC? And I said, with all due respect, I really appreciate it. I'm honored that you think that would be great. I might be interested in talking to you about it, but we're in the middle of a trial here. And I think the guys that are sitting out there in the courtroom are wondering why we're having this ex parte discussion with all these. You might be right. We're not talking about the trial. We're just talking about getting you a job. And I have such high respect for the SEC and for you. I think you should just go over there and join that staff. 
So it was, I will tell you that the same judge was in trial one day and he leans back in his chair, right? And he had this big comfy chair and the jury's there. We're there. We're trying the case, long case. And he leans back and he's like this and he likes to lay back in his chair, right? And he's laying back and swaying, doing this stuff. And all of a sudden, and people know he sometimes falls asleep. All of a sudden he goes ass backwards, right? Off the chair, onto the ground. And his little feet are up in the air like this. And his black socks are like here. And everybody's, he jumps up and he's like, God damn it. I told you to fix this chair. Where's my clerk? Get me, a, get me another chair. I told you to fix this chair. And he's just going, and he had just fallen asleep and fallen out of his chair. And it was just, it was one of those things that happens, but those are the kind of things you never forget. And you get some cool trials. And I did a baby diaper crack case, which we don't have time to probably go through now, but it was a really fun and interesting case that hit a lot of headlines because, because some drug dealers were stuffing one of the sibling diapers full of crack cocaine when they were out there trying to sell. And it turned out to be a whole drug ring in Washington, DC. You remember those things, you get some crazy cases. I'd say the things that I remember as a prosecutor were more of the court interactions and some of the interesting things from juries. You get, I tried a month long major narcotics, big drug ring case. And we got the conviction and we went back to talk to the jury after, and the jury can't talk about the case, right? They're not supposed to talk about it during the whole time. And they're like, can we ask you some questions? And they're like, I was like, sure. And they're like, we love your ties. Your ties are awesome. We talked about them every day because you have the most interesting ties. Everybody else just wears the boring ones. And they were that sudden. They're like, but the real question we have is you had a silver ring on your hand when you started this trial and then you took it off. Did you get divorced or did you have a relationship issue? And I'm like, oh my God. And it was literally, again, I was living with my then girlfriend, now wife. And it was like just a silver ring I had, but I would take it on and off because it didn't really mean anything. And they were, they had a whole debate about what my relationship status was. And you never know what a jury's paying attention to as a trial attorney is one of the, one of the things I figured out. So you got to be on top of your tie game. You got to watch your rings and what you're doing because they are paying attention. Well, Stephen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us in our next episode where we talk about a journey into some troubled companies. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to have have these uh, conversations with you on your podcast. You, you do the best job out there, and it's, uh, it's fun to just sit and chit-chat about our history. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>